RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are listening to the Chantal Baker Show. Yesterday, the long-awaited IPCA report came out about the police handling of the protest at Parliament from February to March in 2022. And if you don't know, the IPCA stands for Independent Police Conduct Authority. And that's exactly what this report is supposed to be, independent. And I'm not going to challenge that. Apparently, this is not a case of the police getting their mates to cover for them. So I take them at their word. And with that in mind, myself and my team have spent the last 24 hours reading, digesting, noting, and sometimes even laughing at what we've read. And I say laughing because I was there and I live streamed much of the protest. And there were others too who recorded as much of it as they could. And over time, these recordings might tell a very different story. The IPCA paints an alarming picture of terrified police officers fighting a deadly battle against a horde of murderous protesters, armed only with laws that prevented them from defending themselves adequately. But what I saw was something very different. And in time, I do believe that that story will come out as well. And that unlike this IPCA report tries to make out, the protesters were peaceful. And the only times anger spilled out, it was due to police involvement. And outside those rare occasions that happened, for the vast majority of the 23 days, the protesters stood and listened to speakers, sang songs, shared stories, people prayed in both Māori and English, Hare Krishnas chanted, everyone ate together, did yoga together, they set up a kids' skate camp, they had teachers. It was a very different time. So what I'm trying to say is that while you can write the word independent on the cover of an official report and you can fill it in with all of the selected truths and facts you want, yep, that's one version of what happened and that's their version and that's fine. It's their voice, the voice of officialdom, but it is only half of the story. What is missing, as always in this story, is the voices of the people. The citizens of New Zealand who were so affected by the events of 2020 to 2022 that they uprooted their lives and went to camp on the lawns of Parliament in an attempt to have their voices heard. And you can say this report is independent, but what you can't say is this report gives the people the voice they attempted to have heard. And that that's just a continuation of how this whole sorry affair has come to pass. One side gets their story told and the other doesn't. So today, here on Reality Check Radio, we'll talk about the report and we'll give voice to those so-called independent voices so no one can claim we're not objective. And we're also going to turn the microphone over to the unheard voices to hear the stories of some of the people who are there who, yet again, have been ignored. If you wanted an illustration of just what it did to people, we were in this truck and this guy, who was a Wellingtonian, just came and he was drawn to just look out for us. He would say, well, what do you need? Then he'd come back the next day with all these battery packs or with games for the children or everything, really. You know, he said how it made a, a big transformation in his life. The people there were just an extraordinary mix of New Zealanders. We were so different from each other and yet we had this common purpose and we were united in that in a way that it's very hard to feel that sort of unity in regular daily life. But on top of that, people, look at the environment. The environment that we have created here, an environment of aroha. Somebody say aroha. aroha. 
Do you know what Aroha means? It means love. We've created that environment here. On top of that, we've created an environment of Faka Fanonga Tanga. Faka Fanonga Tanga means support, supporting one another. Despite your differences, your belief, or your culture. Then on top of that, Manaki Tanga. Somebody say Manaki Tanga. Manaki Tanga means we are all the same. We can work together in unity. The clip you just heard is a clip from the upcoming documentary film about the Wellington protests. We Came Here for Freedom, made by my producer Alistair Harding, an incredibly talented filmmaker. Alistair, thank you for, ha- for hanging out with me. Join the show. Thanks for having me, Chantelle. As always, this is, um, this is a really interesting subject, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we were there. We saw it all happen ourselves. And then to see it written in this official version is... Uh, is a little bit surreal in some ways, isn't it? There's just some parts in there that I was floored by. I think they took it to a level that I did not expect and don't know if that's my naivety or that's just my trust in New Zealand people wanting to be decent human beings and find resolution first, but we'll get into that throughout this show. But yeah, there's some parts in there which I had to read three, four times to fully understand what they were saying. I think this report tells a completely different story to what my memories of the whole event were like. I remember a very loving, inclusive place where people were getting their voices heard. What this report tells is a story about, in some places they're talking about us like we were a murderous horde. And that's just completely at odds with what I remember. Now, I suppose we have to be objective about this and we have to realize that, you know, there was fear on that side, just as there was fear on our side. I mean, I remember distinctly feeling fear about the police actions on a number of occasions. Um, and I suppose what this report shows is that they felt fear on their side as well. Um, but I, I find it very hard to accept that, that they felt that fear because we weren't armed, um, all we were doing was singing songs and listening to speakers and having hug breaks. But I think that depends on where we are talking about in the protest, right? Because from your examples, you're talking about the vast majority of the protest, but they are really only looking at the last day. And so that's what this IPCA report um, sometimes glosses over a little bit. They're actually really only looking at footage and photos of the last day. So the parliamentary CCTV footage they never requested that in time. The police didn't request it from Parliament in time, so it was overwritten. So they actually never looked at any of the footage of the protest during that time frame, during the full 22 days. They only looked at it on the last day, the 23rd. So if you're looking at it objectively, and as we all believe, there were some people there that seemed like they just popped up on the day because they wanted a bit of a scrap with police and they weren't necessarily people that actually cared about the mandates. They just were there for their own reasons. If you just look at that very last day in that perspective, then this IPCA report probably makes more sense. And if you also look at the fact that they took out any instance of uh, assault against the protesters and they claim that those are in their own independent investigations. So if you take out any instances where the police acted aggressively and then you also take into account that they only looked at the final day, then that's the context of this report. I don't think they're looking at only the final day here. They, they do talk about February the 10th. They do talk about other instances. Yeah, but the, but the vast majority is of that final day. 
they're not going through saying, oh, they were peaceful and everything is wonderful on this day and this day and this day and this day. They're just talking about instances of any aggression. And even on that first day, you can't say the protesters were aggressive back because that just did not happen. And so the vast majority of the time without talking about any aggression, they're just talking about that final day. Um, but you're right, there are a couple of instances they refer to like the feces being thrown. Um, and again, we've done OIA reports to try and find like lab results or anything of this kind. And these other OIAs, people have put in and none of that has been given to the public so at this stage we're purely taking the police's word that they said something and I mean it's it's interesting because some of these things started out as there was an unknown liquid then it changed to it could have been urine then apparently in this report it's feces so it just seems over the year to have morphed into something different every single time they're questioned about it which I find unusual if they're not willing to give up the lab results or the police reports and actually give us a bit more detail about what these substances were. Yeah, and I think to me that's a lot of what we're reading in this report is basically just a justification of how the police handled things. There was no, you know, when you look through it, you realize that there wasn't really much emphasis put on negotiation. They didn't really want to talk about things. All they wanted to do was was clear people out, and uh, and that was their approach. Um, I do think that a lot of the way that they use language here and the stories that they tell, that they tell the story from the police side. And when it comes to when they have to tell the story of where the protesters were or what the protesters were thinking or what the protesters think about these things, they, they're not very sympathetic, whereas they're very sympathetic on the police side. And this is where I, I find it interesting because... When you read through the report, it does sound like we were, the protesters were a murderous bunch. Um, and you listen to some of this very emotional language. For example, um, on page 199 of the report, there's, uh, there's a quote from a police officer. Um, and it says, I quote, I believed I was going to watch a cop get killed that day. That was my viewpoint. I vividly recalled thinking, I asked through the radio for approval to deploy the 40mm sponge round with words to the effect, we are losing this battle, we need to change the momentum, turn the tide. I recall requesting that on three, possibly four occasions. You know, this really does paint this picture of them being in this battle where they, they, were, they were under attack. And my memories of the whole occupation were never of protesters attacking the police this paints a completely different picture to what he's talking about this this police person is talking about um i believed i was going to watch a cop get killed that day did you ever feel like your life was in danger or a policeman's life life was in danger during that protest no i definitely didn't feel like there was any policeman lives lives in danger i mean you had people throwing, at one stage, throwing bits of two by four, and I ran in to try and stop them. And you can say that's incredibly dangerous, right? But you also have to remember that the police all had shields, had gloves, had elbow pads, had knee pads. Like They were fully padded up. They had big shields, they had big helmets. They had the whole lot. Um, and I'm not justifying anyone throwing anything ever because I think that's really wrong and I completely disagree with that. Um, but in terms of deadly force, no, because you have to keep in mind, they were also throwing them from miles away from any of the officers. So they'd lost kind of all velocity by the time they got to them. They talk about the paving bricks, and I'm sure that would have been scary. But then the police started throwing them 
back at protesters, giving them back the ammunition. And also the protesters had no kind of padding, didn't have helmets. So in terms of deadly force, that was a lot more deadly towards the protesters than anything that the protesters could achieve back to the police's side. But I think what I found most interesting about all of this and most concerning about all of this was when they're talking in this report about the use of firearms. Because this report talks about how Jacinda Ardern had decided very early on she was not going to talk with any protesters, no matter how small the group was, because earlier in the year people had turned up to events she was talking at and yelled at her, protested against her. So because of these small groups of people that turned up to events, she decided that she wasn't going to talk to any of the tens of thousands of people that turned up during the parliament protest. So she had decided she wasn't going to talk to anyone. And so therefore, the police report says that de-escalation, they said, we're going to try to de-escalation, but around the use of firearms, at one stage, they talk about how uh, a managed retreat is not an option. And then they talk about the use of firearms. So they were more happy for it to escalate to a point that firearms could be needed to be used against people than for the prime minister to have a conversation with people she didn't want to. And if that's not the epitome of deep-rooted narcissism, I have no idea what is. Yeah, and I think backing up that, one of the other things that I noticed in this report was when they give a timeline of the events and how the police reacted to each of these these the things that happened. One of the things that I noticed straight away was that um, the protesters arrived on February the 8th. On February the 9th, the police came in the first time. You see that in... In my film, We Came Here for Freedom, part one, where the police came in and they stood in a line at the top of the steps and it caused a little bit of chaos, but then everybody calmed down a little bit. And then the next morning on February the 10th, on I believe it was a Thursday, the police came in and tried to clear everybody off. And so then when you keep looking through the timeline, you, you go down a couple more days. It's not until February the 13th that they actually decide to start negotiating, that they actually start to try and open a dialogue with the protesters. To me, that sounds like it's just arrogance, is it not? To have a bunch of people turn up, uproot their lives and drive to Wellington to camp on their lawn on the lawns because they've got nothing better to do than to fight for something they truly believe in and the government and the police decided didn't decide until February the 13th that they would actually want to speak and find out what the protesters wanted. And that to me is the root cause, of the, the root problem of all of this is that there's never been an attempt to discuss anything with the protesters. And even in this report, it seems like the protesters are just, they're not really worth listening to. And we'll go through a few of those examples as we go through. But it also seems to just the report seems to just justify a lot of quite appalling police behaviour, and um, in that uh, we talk about um, at point one hundred and twelve. There they talk about eight of the twenty eight incidences incidents that happened during the event. The IPCA believed that they didn't necessarily have to talk about these incidences because they're they're ongoing investigations, but they're really quite quite horrible examples of police conduct, aren't they? 
Yeah, and that this is what I find interesting. So if you take out any examples of the police brutality, especially the force of brutality, then you also take out any of the, the context of the longevity of the protest, then of course you're left with a report that makes it seem glowing in terms of the police behaviour. So that's what I did find really interesting. They've kind of excluded any mass events against the protesters and then made sure that every event against a police officer um, was exemplified. And in here it's interesting because it does say on the final day there was not one police officer that was hospitalised. So, and I'm not saying that that's a justification for use of force because I think that's, you know, basing any violence on if people are in hospital or not is not wonderful. But I am saying that a cut on the head or the hand is very, very different to being hospitalised and a number of the protesters were hospitalised. So you've got to look at this in a little bit of context as well. They're saying they're scared for their lives, yet protesters had much more reason to be scared for theirs. Yeah, and some of these points that I'm looking at here in point 112 punched an elderly man in the face who was attempting to protect another protester from them. I gouged a man. I'll come back to that in a moment. Grabbed a man seated on a bollard and pulled him to the ground by the neck. Fractured a woman's sternum while she was standing in front of the police skirmish line. Placed a man in a headlock and dragged him along the ground by his neck and ear. Struck a woman in the face with a shield, breaking several of her teeth. And I just want to go back to that line. I gouged a man. Um, one compound word and two normal words to describe one of the most horrific things I've ever seen happen. And it was all filmed by the media. It was on television. And yet this is the extent that they're going to talk about it. That was extreme police misconduct at the high end. Yeah, and that, that was far before that last day as well. So that was just some random day. I think wasn't it when it was that they tried to come in and take the toilets or something was happening around the toilet block. block. Um, and that's when he got eye gouged and obviously eye gouged. He was punched in the face repeatedly, massive black eyes, bruises all over his face and eye gouged. And so if they choose to take the instances like that that happened throughout the protests out of this report, I mean, you're going to be left with a one-sided view and that's what this is. Yeah, and I think that's my main complaint with this. It seemed the whole report seems to justify everything by actually glossing over something like this. We've got a really high-end example of police misconduct and it gets three words yeah. put to it. <laughs> that's, that's it. And so, of course, everything after that is going to sound like... Um, sound like it's fine oh yeah they, it, it was justified what they did you know there was, this was a murderous bunch of course we all felt in fear for our lives um but hold on how did phil sorry we're just for listeners who don't know that was uh, a man named phil he got pushed up against some portaloos and eye gouged it was around uh, february 22nd i think some somewhere around there and um, he ended up with massive black eyes I've got that in the film, We Came Here for Freedom as well. You can see the results of what happened. Yet, uh, you know, this just gets glossed over completely. So, I can't help but think how they would have described that if it was a protester that had done it to police. They would have put in a line, I thought I was going blind. I thought I'd lose my vision forever, you know. But they would just, they would dramatise it endlessly if it, was on the pro if it was on the police side. But because it was on the protester side, it says, eh, well, this guy got eye gouged, but like, who really cares? 
Um, that leads us to our next interview, which I think you will all really love listening to. Sue Gray was a prominent voice at the Parliament protest, and her partner Alan had his hip broken by the New Zealand police. All right, Sue, thank you so much for joining me to talk through the IPCA report um, here on ICR. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Oh, thank you, Chantelle. It's my privilege to talk to you. What were your initial thoughts reading through this report? Because I know you've had a bit of a read through. And so what was your initial thoughts when you started reading? Do you think it's really accurate? Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's biased? How do you see this situation as a lawyer? Well, my first impression was actually it was a complete whitewash. I was extremely disappointed and especially because it seemed to sort of have a lot of minor detail but it didn't really answer some of the really big questions that I was more interested in such as the Bill of Rights type questions. Okay so when we go down into this and we start talking about specific isolated incidents and they say things like the COVID numbers were up your partner Alan had a situation at the hospital with being well with them stating that he was a COVID case when he wasn't sure that he was can you talk to me about what happened with that? Yeah, sure. Well, the first of all, I can't even find any reference to Alan in this IPCA report, even though we, Alan and I both spoke to them, we sent them a huge amount of information, and yet there's just nowhere so far that I've been able to find a mention. What happened on the day was um, we were staying in a camper van in a legal park in Aitken Street, and we heard a helicopter around 6am, so we went out to have a look. We both took our cameras, started live streaming everything we could do, walked up Hill Street slightly, um, saw a wave of police coming down the street with their shields and helmets and whatever on. Um, it was quite confusing at the time. And um, I lost, I didn't see where Alan went. Um, I sort of went over on the side of the street and then the police just basically pushed people out of the way. I watched so many people getting pushed and shoved and I got pushed and shoved myself. And then probably half an hour later, I got a call from Alan to say he'd been pushed over um, and couldn't walk anymore. And so it took me about a half an hour or more to actually get around because I had to go all the way around the block to get around to where he was and find him sitting in a wheelchair waiting for an ambulance where he waited and waited and waited for about, four hours in total before he got an ambulance and then when we finally got to Wellington Hospital uh, they did a COVID test on him and they said that he was positive for COVID so he was in isolation for the next seven days while he was getting a replacement hip as a result of the police assault. Now none of that seems to have found its way into this report. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's some things that are omitted from this? Oh, I, I, I can only speculate. Um, they did write to me because I, as a lawyer, I wrote to the Police Complaints Authority on behalf of three people quite early on. Um, one was Alan, one was Portaloo Phil, and one was the journalist who I personally observed and videoed being assaulted by the police. And, and with each of their consent, I wrote and made a complaint. And I got a, a um, an email back at one stage saying no they weren't going to be looking at any individual complaints they were only going to be looking at overall police conduct and that they wouldn't be investigating specific complaints any further so I thought well that was I understood they had a lot of complaints but I thought that that was pretty poor when two of those complaints involved very 
serious injuries. And the third one with the journalist involved basically interference in a person collecting evidence that may be required for future court proceedings. So that was serious in my view in a different way. Um, as far as I can find, they haven't they haven't addressed any of those. So they just sort of drew a line and excluded a whole lot of important information. Do you think they made an effort to understand why the protesters were there or do you think that doesn't fall into what they were trying to achieve, which is simply to look at police, um, the police's use of authority? Yeah, I had quite a good conversation with the woman who was investigating my complaints and I actually emailed her at one stage and said, look, can you please assure me that this is going to be a genuine inquiry because if it's not, then I'm not prepared to waste my time. But if it is a genuine inquiry, I'm prepared to assist you as much as I can. And she came back saying, oh no, it's absolutely a genuine inquiry. So, and we did talk about, with her, I think she was very interested. We talked about a whole lot of the background. We talked about a meeting that a group of us had arranged with the police the day before this, what I call a riot occurred on the 2nd of March. So on the 1st of March, we had a meeting scheduled with some senior police at 1.30. At 1.25, the police cancelled that meeting. Um, you know, we, we had a really good discussion about all sorts of things, including the Bill of Rights issues, the mandates, why people had felt the need to go to Wellington. And yet, you know, this all seems to be just ignored unless it's hiding in some subsection that I haven't found yet. So did you see any of the write-up of your, your details of that meeting? Did you see any of that or not yet? I haven't found any of that so far at least. Okay, because I did see I did see a section where they had written about one meeting, but they effectively tried to say that the deputy police commissioner had done it without um, other members being notified. So it seemed to me like they thought there might have actually been something to that meeting, but they wanted to make it clear that he did it kind of of, of his own volition. Well, we didn't have the meeting because we all um, went together at a room for a Zoom call and at, at five minutes before the meeting, the police emailed back to say it was cancelled. So the, that was the that was the main meeting I was going to attend. Um, actually, on the very I think it was the second day of the protest, the first day that there was any police presence, I actually introduced myself to one of the police officers and said, "Hey, you know, I'm co-leader of the Outdoors Party. I'm a lawyer. I know a lot of the people here from different events. If you want to do any liaison, I'm really really happy to talk to you." And I was never ever approached during the whole time. Um, I spoke to quite a few other police at different times, usually on the sort of bollards that were they'd put around the, the barriers of the of the location. Again, I offered to help with anything, never, never any sort of interest at all. So I don't actually think they were trying to engage at all. Do you think it's right their assessment of the dangers and of the level of violence of the protesters? completely wrong. The only time I ever saw any violence at the protest was when the police were there and much of that violence was instigated by the police. Um, from the very first day, it was incredibly peaceful and people were just happy to get together and be there. On the first day, there were no police and I actually wanted to go to the toilet and I walked up to Parliament to the door where we'd normally go in and make submissions to the select committee and I asked the security guard if I could please go inside and use the toilet. And he, he looked a bit sheepish and embarrassed and said, oh, look, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to let anybody in. So I ended up going down to the railway station instead. But, you know, that was the thing. There was When there was no police presence, the, the, the 
the atmosphere was really, really good. It was only when the police came storming in in large numbers and pushing and shoving people that obviously some people got a bit hot, you know, heated up. But then the other thing that happened on that last day was there were clearly infiltrators in the crowd. And you can, I've, I've, was at the hospital with Alan for much of the day, but I've seen the videos of those group of people with the bandanas across their face. I've seen the screenshots of Antifa um, congratulating themselves for causing so much trouble. And I don't believe that what I call the third group at the protest, so first there were the genuine protesters, then there were the police, but the third group were the Antifa slash intentional troublemakers they were not part of the protest and yet they were it seems largely the people who intentionally caused trouble on the last day there's been a lot of discussion in the media around how they were upset at the use of use of language by the protesters and some of the signs that the protesters had um, calling for Jacinda to be hung and things like that what is your take on that situation Look, I didn't see those signs. There were a huge amount of signs, but almost everything I saw was was quite sort of peace and love type of attitude. Of course, some people were unhappy because they'd lost their career. Some people had lost their homes. Their family members were distraught that they, you know, there were, I remember signs from little kids that couldn't go to their ballet lessons or, or sports anymore. Um, but you know, if there were any stronger signs, then they, they're using them to make a fuss. You know, actually harden up and do your job. And if there's the occasional protester that's causing trouble, well, let's deal with the occasional protester, but let's not lump everybody under one category because the people I met were doctors, teachers, nurses, um, correction staff, defenseful staff, quite a few police themselves. Um, there were journalists who were after hours during the day reporting the government narrative, after hours coming down and enjoying the lovely vibe at the protest, you know, there, there were all sorts of people there. There were lots of people from Wellington, friends of mine who'd come down every night after work because it was so much fun and such a great place to be. And it was basically the only um, party sort of atmosphere in town. There were just so many good, normal people down there. And it's just a big excuse for them to not engage. And the, the other thing is the government said they weren't engaging because we stayed overnight. Well, they could have engaged on the first day they could have engaged when we went on to other protests previously where people just stayed for a few hours and then went home, but they never engaged at any of those protests either. It was, again, in my view, just an excuse. Mm. Hey, so thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to hearing more of your thoughts as time goes by and as we all have time to kind of go through this IPCA report in great detail. Thank you so much for coming on with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Chantelle. It's my, my privilege to be talking to you and any time. Very happy to help. RCR with Chantelle Baker, Reality Check Radio. They had a definite way that they wanted to portray those at the protest and to twist things to such a point that it appeared that way in their narrative. You know, they were calling us the river of filth, you know, white supremacists about everything under the sun, just to try and make us look bad, trying to tell us that there was rubbish everywhere and trying to say that people were flushing their toilet compartments into the middle of the streets and into the sea, which definitely wasn't true. They were saying some nasty things, you know, things like, you can't walk through there with a mask because you will get harassed. 
And so I put that to the test and I walked through Parliament and all I got was people looking at me smiling. I was really disappointed. I was hoping that someone would have a go at me so I could turn around and then say, you are the type of person that mainstream media is zoning in on and making us look bad. You need a different approach. But it never happened. When we talk reporting, I mean, another really interesting part was the helicopter trip. Someone had offered to sponsor a helicopter so Chantel could do a flyover of both what was happening in Wellington and what was happening in Picton. So they did the flyover of the Wellington protest and then they landed to change choppers to go over to Picton and basically the pilot got told, no, you're not. You know, we've got the disinformation project that goes around saying, oh, these are all misinformation people. Well, actually, we were stopped from people getting all the information themselves. Government officials would not allow the people in New Zealand to see the whole story. The helicopter pilot has just had a call from the senior sergeant of the police requesting that we no longer fly. Why are they not wanting to show what's really going on there? I'm asking you, senior sergeant, what are you trying to suppress? We used the term gaslighting, but to me it was even more malicious than that. There was that case with Phil being eye-gouged. It's quite obvious to see how that went down, yet it was portrayed by the media that it was his fault. Well, if standing there voicing your opinion justifies a police officer going for your eyes, it's disturbing. I mean, for an officer to do such an act like that, that is filth. It's very hard to rationalise that with how the media portrayed that. Where's the news reporting on when things haven't gone right from the police side of it? Why is that being kept suppressed? such a powerful documentary. I've seen a first run at it and you will all be absolutely blown away by the amount of uh, time and effort and just incredible examples of the detail of what really went on at the protest. So you can watch that on operationpeople.com. We came here for freedom. There's one side of this, the story about the protesters being peaceful and loving, which is our side. And when the police came in, there was a feeling of oppression People talk a lot about the feeling that they were living in a police state, that they felt powerless against this sort of machine. All the police were masked. They didn't talk to you, explain to you what they were doing. But on the other side, this report almost talks as if they were so hamstrung by out-of-date laws, under-equipped and overwhelmed by a superior force, that they were forced to resort to what they called weapons of opportunity which to them were the fire extinguishers, water hoses and paving bricks. And the report describes it as an object or substance taken from the immediate environment for use in self-defence or defence of another when no other appropriate and approved tactical option is accessible or available. And actually, I want to talk about this for a second, just this notion of self-defence. The protesters were standing there in the field and on the parliament grounds like they had been doing every single day. They weren't trying to kick over the fences to run towards parliament buildings. They weren't trying to break into areas. They were just standing on the grounds asking to be listened to. So for the police to come in and start attacking people, pushing them over, hitting them, destroying all of their property and then call it self-defence is absurd. It's not true. They were attacking the people that they wanted to get rid of. That's the reality of the situation. Then they wanted to use weapons of opportunity to further their goal. And I did find it interesting in the report. They mentioned myself and my film crew, but they just called us protesters. They said how we were up on the pillar, and that's part of a separate investigation when we were sprayed by multiple police officers with fire extinguishers. Now, in another ruling, a judge had, I think it was a Judge Smith, but I'll have to double-check that, against a man who sprayed fire extinguisher at the police officers, The judge called it a harmful substance that can be toxic if ingested and it caused egregious, can cause egregious harm. And it was an egregious use of this fire extinguisher. 
Now, the police report doesn't mention that we were held hostage up on this pillar. We were just filming. That's all we were doing. I believe a lot of them knew who I were, who I was. And they held three different fire extinguishers on us as we from below, as we were up on this pole, so we couldn't breathe, couldn't see, couldn't get down because you can't see if it's safe in these spiked steel fence all around you. So you can't jump down. It wasn't safe and they would not stop. And we were screaming at them to let us get down, to stop so we could get down. After that incident, I had this horrible cough. I was coughing up this like white mucusy, horrible stuff for nearly a month afterwards. My face was all swollen. I had rashes. It was awful. And at the end of that day, we actually ended up having to drive and get driven straight to the sea to jump off and to try and get that all out of our clothes, out of our hair, out of, and we just jumped straight in the sea to try and get it off because it was itchy and horrible. And I was endlessly coughing. It was awful. So they just took out instances like that because that was an egregious use of harm and so, sorry, an egregious use of that. And so rather than putting that in the report, they even had a photo in there that shows the, the police officer or one of them holding a fire extinguisher, but down low. So you can't actually see that they were spraying us on that fence. They just picked a cherry picked a photo that worked better for this report. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, and you see this very, very clearly, Chantelle, in the film. Um, where we, you had you up there on top, uh, Jake was up there with you. There was also, I was filming from further back. I didn't actually realize at the time because there was so much fire extinguisher smoke all around that I did, couldn't actually see you guys, but I happened to be filming that way. Um, and then there was, uh, Lingo Louie, he was up on the other the, the other pillar on the other side of the gate, he was filming the same thing. So we've got about three or four angles of the same event happening. And all you're doing is standing up there. Now in the report, they talk about the use of fire extinguishers in that instance of them firing through that gate with the fire extinguishers. And they're saying their excuses is that people were standing there throwing stuff at the backs of police. That At that time, the police had advanced past the gates on the inside of the parliament grounds. Now, this is um, completely untrue. I, as I said, I was filming it. I've, I've actually got footage of that happening. And there, was, um, there were a couple of people near the gates, but there weren't many. It was only one or two because they were, they were uh, firing the fire extinguishers. But all those people were doing was just um, shouting at the police. And uh, they, they certainly weren't throwing things. And you guys certainly weren't throwing things either. So to me, all this shows, again, is just they're just trying to justify what the police did. Like you said, other people have actually been prosecuted for using a fire extinguisher against police. So in that case, I can't help but, but, but think that the law isn't being used equally in these cases. But again, they, they keep on talking about how all of these things, all these weapons of opportunity, so to speak, were all in self-defense. When, as you said right at the beginning, my memory of the, that day was that we were woken at six o'clock in the morning by police with shields and batons and, and helmets charging at us. Um, there was only one aggressor on that day in my memory. Yeah, I think there was one aggressor, but then people were riled up towards when they started fighting back. And that was true. And that did happen. Um, 
And I think that this was interesting because we have an interview with Phil and so we'll get to question him on what he thinks is an egregious use against the people because he did um, group training, he did anti-riot training, he's part of, he was a member of the SAS here in New Zealand, so he's military trained. So it's interesting to hear his perspective of how they handled the situation. Was it appropriate and did they try to de-escalate or were they trying to escalate because you've got you've got things like when they use the water hoses on the people. Now I do think by that point um, it almost seemed like it was a big free for all. You know they were using whatever they could, and I I get the sense that they really felt, particularly when the protesters started pulling up the pavement and how they even did that. I've got no idea. I didn't even know people were strong enough they could pull up pavement. So I think we had largely exited the protest by that point. After that, we came down the stairs, I had a group of people try to attack me, essentially. Um, so I exited the protest really quickly after that. I was covered in this dust and I couldn't breathe very well and it was horrible. So, so I didn't see, I didn't go back in and see any of that. You couldn't get back in once you exited. So all I've got is really live streams and videos of what happened. But I get the feeling that the protesters almost, or protesters or agitators, who knows, I think it could have been a mix of both, really did start to gain ground back on the police. I think the police were really seriously thinking about what do we do now? And they couldn't retreat because retreat would make our police force look absolutely um, pitiful in the eyes of other people who were believing the media and saying these protesters are terrible people. So they couldn't let the protesters win again. They had to shut it down and they were prepared to do whatever necessary to make that happen. One of those things that they believed was necessary, I, I have to laugh a little bit at this one, is the use, again, the use of weapons of opportunity. And they're talking about bricks. So apparently they were having the bricks thrown at them, as you were talking about. Um, and then a couple of the police officers in the report admit to throwing them back at the, at the police. And I find this a little bit funny because um, they were so they, they do talk about how they were scared for their lives. And I could imagine how if you get hit in the face by a brick or hit in the head that you could get some real damage done to you. Um, but I would, But I would think that uh, you wouldn't want the protesters to have those bricks back so they could throw them at you again. But that's exactly what the police did, apparently. They were, they were picking them up and throwing them back at the, at the protesters. Um, I, find, I find that funny and also quite disturbing that the police, apparently being very, very professional, according to this report, thought that it was, at, it was justified. And when you look through the findings of the report, all of these things... The IPCA report says everything was justified. Um, on, on one of the pages here, use of force reporting, um, use of LRADs, justified. Use of skirmish lines and shields, justified. Use of empty hand tactics, that's when police were, were pushing and, and punching at the protesters, justified. Use of pepper spray, justified. Battens, justified. Weapons of opportunity, justified. Uh, all the way down, tire deflation, sponge rounds, carriage of firearms. Why on earth they thought that carrying firearms into that situation was a good idea, I'll never know. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I feel like that would be a really – but but then when they say police officers justified in carrying firearms, you have the armed defenders squad that was stationed there, but they were back from your frontline squad. So your frontline squad didn't have firearms on them, obviously, because if you're grappling with protesters, you didn't, wouldn't want anyone being able to grab a gun off you. That wouldn't really make sense. And so they had the armed defenders squad, and the armed defenders squad um, had asked to be able to use their firearms earlier. And this is what made me laugh. I did find this quite funny, but it just comes down to, again, they had this picture that the protesters were so dangerous, you know. So there was, a, there was a pile of pipes that were in a bush near the university, and apparently someone said that they were guns. So the armed defenders squad said, we need our guns, we need to be able to be armed because there's these pile of guns hidden in a bush. But it was just some pipe in a bush. So you would think that they would have a little bit more intelligence where they could send out someone undercover and they could just go and check what the spills in the bush. Um, but instead of doing that, they were like, we need guns. <laughs> we, need to, we need to be able to shoot people just in case. And I can understand that because if you genuinely, if there, if there were actually guns, then you can understand why they would want to make sure that um, the police weren't going to get shot because I completely agree with that. I think that you don't want the use of firearms ever during a protest. That's absolutely absurd. Um, but the fact that they were just pipes did just make me go, oh my goodness. And it's just another testament to the fact that they truly did believe that these protesters were, you know, the world's most dangerous people. And essentially this river of filth that they'd been hearing about on the TV all this time. But then we get to the next part, which is were the arrests justified? So this is interesting because the vast majority of protesters had all of their charges dropped. I know my father had his charges dropped. Uh, all of the girls that we have talked to had their charges dropped. It's interesting. It seems that the only people that really were charged were people that had prior convictions, which I can understand. And I remember dad saying something, when I say dad, I mean Leighton Baker, but I remember him saying something interesting. He said, out of everyone that was sitting there in the cells with him when he got arrested on that final day, they were all 50-year-old like dudes that had never been jailed before and they looked around and they were going, how are we even here? <laughs> you know, never been arrested or done anything wrong in their life and yet you had a whole group of them that were arrested simply because they thought this was wrong and they were willing to go and sacrifice themselves for what they believed was the greater good, which was to say to the police, this is unacceptable and you cannot treat New Zealand citizens this badly and refuse to talk with them and say that you'd rather assault them than have a conversation. So this gets me to the next part. The current findings. The current law governing arrest, and this is from the IPCA report, they say this, the current law governing arrest is not fit for purpose for the mass public disorder situation that confronted the police on the 2nd of March. But this really paints a picture of police ineptitude. They didn't negotiate with protesters until February the 13th, so they never talked about negotiation or dialogue seriously. So that was after they'd already come in and assaulted the protesters on the, on the very first time. They then they hadn't even thought about negotiating with anybody. So they would rather come in, assault them, get rid of them, then have any sort of conversation right from the outset. And that mindset really did carry through until that final day. The February 10th attack was woefully inadequate. They should have gone harder, worse on the protesters that day. They were not armed enough for March the 10th. They needed those weapons of opportunity because those saved lives. The lack of training left them unable to face unarmed protesters who stood with their backs to the police. 
And on top of that, no apparent prosecution of officers for doing things like eye gouging, breaking any bones, sending people to hospital and using toxic substances. So that gets us to the interview of Phil. Phil is ex-SAS, he's a member of the OP team and he was working with us during the parliament protest and I wanted to get Phil's opinion of this from someone who has done anti-riot training because I haven't, I don't know from the police's or military side what is acceptable and what isn't. So without further ado, Phil, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Sh- hi Chantel, um, nice to be on the show. So with your group police training, what, how were you taught to handle crowds? Yeah, well, well, with um, the military, we, we did some riot control training and, and things like that. Um, and and also working in the counter-terrorist area, uh, we actually, the role in counter-terrorism is we would, hand, we would get jobs handed over from police to us. And generally the police's strategy is a strategy of de-escalation because they want to uh, walk away with a, a peaceful resolution. And so their job is to de-escalate rather than escalate things, um, as opposed to the role that I was in, which was we weren't too worried about... Uh, I mean, de-escalation and, and proportional use of force was was something that we did, but we, we weren't as worried about trying to negotiate and come to peaceful resolution um, by the time it got to us. So So that was sort of the contrast between sort of how the police handle things and, and how the military would then handle a domestic uh, terrorist situation. And, um, you know, from from looking at the protest and, and this IPCA report, I guess I, I think this is very disappointing on the eve of Anzac Day when we're going to be commemorating uh, all, all those lives that were lost fighting against totalitarian regimes and against regimes like the, the you know, the Nazis that were um, taking away people's rights. And here we have this IPCA report. Essentially, when, when you read through the, the summary and, and, you know, I haven't read the entire report, but what I've read so far is I'm getting the indication that they're advocating for... Uh, to rewrite laws to allow the police to do this type of thing in the future. They're sort of saying, you know, it's not very clear how we deal with this and we need to allow them to be able to do this in the future and so we need to write the laws to do that. Well, on the eve of Anzac Day, I think that is a very, very disappointing um, outcome from the report. I, I also don't think it's the report has accurately or ha- has done a very good job of understanding the the pre-protest picture of why the protesters were there. I mean, these protesters were there to fight for freedom. They were, they were there to uphold the Bill of Rights. Um, and we can see that throughout the pandemic. They'd actually taken a few sections of the Bill of Rights. They'd taken your right to um, refuse to undergo medical treatment, and they'd taken your right to freedom of, a, of movement. And they'd actually... Uh, sort of used these two as a as a bargaining chip. So they'd said, well, if you want your if if you want to uphold your right to refuse to undergo a medical treatment, then you're going to have to sacrifice your right to freedom of movement. Um, and if you sacrifice your right to, uh, you know, if you don't sacrifice your right to um, refuse to undergo a medical treatment, then you're going to lose your right to freedom of movement. And I, I think mm. you know it's. 
that's what they were there for. They were there fighting to uphold our Bill of Rights. Um, there are no Section 5 in the Bill of Rights. It sort of puts limits on that. But in reality, um, you know, that I, I think we, we did see a, a move towards removing rights. And I think this protest, one of the biggest in New Zealand probably, after perhaps maybe the Springbok tour, um, again, who were, were fighting for sort of equal rights. And, yeah, r- right on the eve of Anzac Day, this just doesn't bode well for New Zealand, I think. You, you talked earlier about de-escalation. Do you think the police tried to de-escalate the situation on that final day? On the final day, no. I don't think there was any de-escalation. In fact, I, I think they did the opposite. There was a few inciting incidents. I think sort of, I think it was late morning slash early afternoon, um, the police with the uh, riot body armour, uh, there's about 30 or 40 of them or so sitting on the parliamentary library stairs. And and at one point, they launched off the stairs and they just leapt over the barriers and they sort of ran through in a big raid using sort of a shock action tactic. And, and I think from that point on, from, from covering it that day with the camera, I, I did notice that really the tensions escalated and then that's when you sort of had uh, a lot of the um you know you started to see the police starting to use fire extinguishers against people they were using batons against people um and you know and and that's when really things escalated um it also did split the protesters onto sort of two fronts uh on on either side of the fence of parliament lawn um but yeah I, i did find that at that stage, they, they had completely abandoned um, any sort of de-escalation. I, I found it was disappointing that, uh, that the politicians didn't come out as well. I, I would have thought that the, wor- the police were working um, towards, would have been working towards getting uh, sort of at least an audience with the politicians to help de-escalate. And that, it seems that they didn't really uh, do that option. So... Yeah, really disappointing. I, I don't really see it as an escal- as a de-escalation um, tactic. I, I actually thought that the police did the opposite, and they actually escalated throughout that final week to to uh, March the second. And on March the second, there were several incidents that I would say were escalatory rather than de-escalation. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they say, well, if the protesters just acted what they deemed legally and went home and just stopped camping out, then we could talk with them possibly. But they ignore the fact that there's been protests against these mandates for over a year prior to that, and every single one of them was ignored by the politicians. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a good point, actually. And and I think, um, you know, that they didn't actually take in that intelligence picture very well. The intelligence picture leading up to this does show a lot of protests against um, against the the, pro, um, the the mandates and things like that. Um, and it, yeah, it, it seems that they were more concerned about a few people that uh, you know reported losing their rights because they couldn't move up and down Molesworth Street. Um, a few local residents. When in reality, walking through there, there were people, there were school kids walking through there every day, and they were unimpeded, unhindered, you know, unhindered. And um, it, it seems that this report really sided with those locals, a few locals, when you, when you had thousands of New Zealanders that 
didn't want to take the vaccine and had become, um, you know, had become subject to these mandates and, and lost their rights because of that. Um, and, you know, and it failed to acknowledge that for thousands of Kiwis, uh, you know, they'd been, for since November, they'd lost their rights and, um, yeah, mm. and so I think the the report was extremely biased and and didn't take a very good view of the protesters. Didn't take a, a, an unbiased view of the protesters and acknowledge their situation. There's an interesting uh, chapter here, and it's on page forty and forty one, and it's essentially a whole list of things that people said online could have potentially been part of the protest, um, and they're saying no, we decided that none of these things happened. Um, and part one of this was um, did not use plainclothes officers or authorise a range or pay for anyone else to agitate protesters. Um, now there were a number of undercover police officers that came and visited the process on a daily basis, but obviously we won't know exactly what they said to different protesters um, but it's interesting here because essentially they go through a huge list of things saying that the police definitely didn't do essentially anything wrong during the protest whatsoever. Do you think that the IPCA would have had access to all the information they needed or do you think it's just a result of the police saying no that didn't happen and so therefore the IPCA take them at their word? I think a little bit of both. The IPCA in that report does note that the police didn't keep certain records of meetings and things like that. So it seems there's been a, a lot that's happened within that uh, the police strategy side that has, hasn't even been recorded on paper. So what was said in a meeting is not necessarily um, doesn't necessarily get handed over to the IPCA or, or it's, there's no there's no record, there's no paper trail of, of what happened in that meeting. Now, um, after being in the military, then, you know, I can understand that you could actually task some people without actually, without actually leaving a paper trail. So, so yeah, it, it's, I think they have probably taken them at their word. It looks to me that they, they have just completely trusted whatever the police have said, rather than sort of, taking more of a, a critical perspective and said, well, perhaps have the police, uh, you know, mm. um, they, are, they are taking that the police have just purely acted in, in good faith. There's, um, there's one other thing here that I would... I, this difference as well with, with the protesters as well. It seems that they are sort of biased towards um, the police side rather than taking sort of an impartial uh, investigative approach. And that's really concerning on a number of levels because people were very upset that I had given a lot of our footage to the IPCA, but I said, no, we've got to trust the process and trust that even though it's still a government organisation, that they will be objective in their, in their views, right? That's the, that's the position we took here at OP. We wanted to make sure that we tried to follow the right process and say, look, this is the information we have and we trust that you guys will act on it with integrity and with balance. And unfortunately, this report has seemed to do the opposite of that. There was one other bullet point here that I found interesting, particularly concerning a lot of the discussions I've had with you um, and with other members that are still serving, either in the military or in the police. And that is this. When they would come in every single night at different hours of the night, it absolutely seemed strategic because they were doing tiny moves that they didn't actually need to do, particularly in the early stages of the protest. Now, they have said this in the IPCA report. 
um, the police carried out a number of operational tasks, such as placement or repositioning of bollards, in the early hours of the morning to ensure minimal interference from protesters and reduce disruption to the general public and traffic and not as a tactic to wear down the protesters. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I actually disagree with that. Absol- yeah, I absolutely disagree with that in the sense that, um, you know, because it was it was such a pattern and it was every night and, and some of the, the things that they did, just moving a bollard just slightly... Um, or you know something like that was it was unnecessary and um, yeah it, to me it, it, it seemed more like it was a tactic. Now that would be a tactic that I would have used um, had <laughs> had I you know been in a, in a military sense and and com, in combat or something overseas. It would be you know you you generally do stuff at night time under the cover of darkness. Um, it keeps people on edge. It wears down morale, things like that. So, so by doing these sort of probing attacks, I think um, you know it, it did actually change the morale of the protest. And I, I, I can't remember where I've seen that, but I have seen that um, somewhere else. That some maybe the media or something did also notice that change as well. It was a bit in about the last week of the protest when when they started doing that morale really changed and I I think that was sort of in part that was escalatory as well because it it really when you change the morale of people when they're not getting sleep at night when they're uh, in fear that they're going to be attacked every night um, they start becoming agitated uh, anxiety levels go up and uh, they they sort of get a a bit more short-tempered and short-fused and I think uh, we definitely did see that happen in the last week of that protest um, as a as a sort of progressive strategy uh, towards that March second um, clearance. Do you think there's and, any way and, that the police wouldn't have known? Do you think there's any way that the police wouldn't have known the impact that that was having on the mental space of the protesters? No, I, I disagree because that's also an interrogation tactic. So they, they would have known that, you know, by keeping people, giving people a lack of sleep um, and things like that, they break down a lot easier. I mean, if you look at Trevor Mallard's actions, they, they don't even say in there that the music Trevor Mallard played, um, or, or not that I've seen yet anyway, and I haven't read the entire report, so I'll, I'll make sure I qualify it with that. But from what I've read about the Trevor Mallard music, they just say Trevor Mallard brought some speakers out and played some music. Well, that's only part of the story because the actual music he played was music that would play along on a recorder and then it had out-of-tune notes. Now, when you play that type of thing, that is actually a tactic um, to to bear people down as well because you expect to hear... Um, a, a piece of music that flows, but by introducing that um, those notes, it, it would throw people off. Um, and and that type of thing, when it when it plays on loop like they had it playing, is is designed to bear down on people. Now now doing I've done resistance to interrogation training, and we do the same thing. So so similar tactics like playing the sound of children crying and things like that are used playing the set, um, white noise and things like that continually and and tracks like what Trevor Mallard played are actually used 
as a strategy to try and break people down over time because it, it's this repetitive nature, but there's something in it that is not quite right. And that one thing in there that's not quite right ends up um, sort of getting on your nerves and, and um, you know, and the IPCA report seemed to miss this completely. Um, so I think either they don't really know what they're doing um, or it's just not a very good report. It's not very thorough. Awesome. Hey, Phil, thank you so much for joining me and sharing with us your insight into the Independent Police Commission that happened during the Parliament, over the Parliament protest. So we really appreciate your time and we'll talk with you soon. Awesome. Thanks very much. So that's the police side of the story. We're going to take a break now and after we come back, we're going to turn the microphone to the, in the direction of the people who aren't in this report. The protesters. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio. You're listening to the Chantal Baker Show. Here is a clip from upcoming documentary We Came Here for Freedom, produced by Alistair Harding from OperationPeople.com. I think I'm just gutted because of what was destroyed. To stand there and experience being pepper sprayed, having to put in earplugs because of the sound waves they were using. It was scary. You couldn't even believe it was reality. You know, they had a job to do. I'm not saying they didn't, and it was finishing that day one way or the other. But it broke my heart that it had come to this. I saw my mates getting fire extinguishers sprayed on them. I saw the aggression of the police, and uh, watching it getting torn apart was just really heartbreaking. They raided us at night time. They wore us down mentally, physically, on purpose to be able to attack. On that day, we had no weapons, and yet they were charging at us with shields, body suits, as though we were coming at them with bombs and guns. And so, yes, there were people that retaliated, but nowhere near in the way they came at us. It definitely didn't have to be violent. And I think if the government had the humility to listen to the people that actually pay them, then they could have ended it peacefully. But they didn't want to talk, they didn't want to listen. They just continued to ridicule, mock and demonise the people that were there. So it was their choice to make it end violently. What I saw was the government creating this narrative about people, calling them a river of filth, and they're using the media to perpetuate that hate. Not once were these protesters running towards the police, it was only ever the police moving forward on them. And that's the side of the story that didn't get shown. You know, and you've got to start to question, why didn't the media want to engage? There was nothing stopping them from coming down and having a all with us. But instead, what you saw on the mainstream media was the police officers laden with protective gear as if they were going to war. <laughs> we weren't war. We weren't there to battle. We were standing with our backs to the police officers. I think the former Prime Minister's legacy is division. First, you dehumanise them, so you give them another label. You know, they're hysterical, they're violent, they're anti-vaxxers, they're anti-mandators, but not that they're uncles, fathers, husbands, dads, cousins. You know, you dehumanise them and then you can treat them as something totally different. And that's just another tactic the media used. And it's just sad that they use it and they know they're using it and they're proud of it. That's what is a bit scary, really. Today we're talking about the IPCA report that came out yesterday. How this report paints a picture of extreme violence on behalf of the protesters and how that picture is nothing like what I saw. And together with me is my producer Alistair Harding who was also there as a documentary filmmaker. So Alistair, what is your perspective of this as someone who's created an entire documentary about that protest? 
Yeah, I think to me the biggest story out of all of this that I I was drawn to as a filmmaker was that the people who were there, the people who were affected by it, the people who were central to it, their voices weren't heard at all. I mean, the media ignored them. The, the media misrepresented them. The government ignored them. And then the police just attacked them. That's how I see it. Um, and you could argue that, those, those points of view, I suppose. That's no problem at all. But we've never heard from the media ever about why the protesters were there. And so the voices of the people who were there is central to the film We Came Here for Freedom. And throughout it, as you've heard through the, the clips that we've played here today, you can hear those voices and you can hear the reasons that they were there and, and their thoughts. And again, in this IPCA report, they're just completely absent. There are comments about them, but they're very dispassionate. They're, they're not really seeking to understand why the protesters were there. And so that's why I think um, this is really interesting for us now to turn away from the report for a moment and talk to some of the people that were there um, and so we, we arranged uh, the interview for you with um, Susan and Taryn and Bex. And they, in this coming interview, they talk about that. What, was you, what were your impressions of them when you spoke to them and why they were there? I think all of these ladies were passionate about getting the mandates to stop. I think they were really dedicated and I think they had a vision for how they saw this all play out. But rather than just taking my opinion, let's hear from the ladies themselves. So welcome, ladies. Thank you so much for joining me. We are on Reality Check Radio, and you are all listening to The Chantal Baker Show. Today we have three very special guests sitting here with me. They were some of the ladies that were arrested during the first police, try when the police first tried to shut down the parliament protest a couple of days into the protest. And so they were arrested, held in prison, and now we're going to talk about their story with the IPCA report that has just come out pretty much saying that all of the use of force was justified parliament protesters are terrible people and nobody should have been there to begin with so if we could start with you ladies introducing yourselves and then the area that you're from i am rebecca land um, i'm from hukianga i'm susan denham and i live in christchurch i'm taryn reed from gisborne east coast so let's start talking about when, let's, we'll talk about the protest generally a little bit later, but I think right now we should just talk about the arrest, what happened with it, what the police were like. So how did that arrest first happen? Where were you guys? What time of day was it? What was going on? I was arrested uh, really early, so we kind of woke up and saw the line forming. Um, yeah, I, I just read on the report that it was 8am, and yeah, I kind of had no idea at the time. And it probably, I think I was arrested at 1020 um, uh, having had quite a lot of protest experience um, with, you know, social justice stuff and environmental protests and that sort of thing, I had a, um, you know, vague idea but never been arrested or confronted with real police um, pressure. Um, so, yeah, we were just sitting down and linking arms and definitely got scuffled around. Um and but then yeah, just got kind of pulled out with unnecessary force because there was absolutely no resistance from us. Um, I think I was hit over the head, but I, I don't really know where that came from. But um, yeah, and so a couple of female officers took me and wrenched my arms up my back, and then yeah, that was kind of that was it really. Um, I was treated 
pretty well compared to most people, I think. Um, yeah. Awesome. So it was about 8 a.m. when everyone was sitting down in the circles before people stood up? Yeah, I think they from the report was saying that they started the announcements at 8. I actually thought it was earlier, but yeah. Um, yeah, so it all was a bit of a time warp, really. Yeah, <laughs> merges into one blob, doesn't it? I was arrested later on in the day. I really didn't think that I was going to get arrested. I, I didn't think that anyone around me would get arrested because we weren't doing anything bad. We were just hanging out. And, yeah, the, I watched my arrest on, like, a feed, a live feed, and I was like, oh, that's how it all happened. They they had some little techniques that they were doing behind the line, and they split up our line and charged a line of them into us and then all of a sudden I was just kind of surrounded by all these police officers just going how did I get here yeah and then they tried to take me and I they just had my shirt and I sort of ducked down and thought that they'd let go but they hadn't and then when I stood back up again they just popped me out and yeah just I just didn't resist or anything and the two ladies took me away so were people standing at that point? Was that a little bit later? We were all just standing, sitting there, talking to the police, or standing there, talking to the police, and singing. Yeah. Mm. And were your backs facing the police at that point, or were you front on? Front on. We were all front on. Yeah. Because that was, that was about midday, wasn't it, when people turned around, I think? Uh, Maybe it was a little bit earlier? I, I don't know, but it was... I didn't know what was going on in the rest of the line. We could only sort of see what was going on around, like, 10 metres around us. And I thought all the arrests and everything were just happening down the other end. Um, yeah, I think we were all facing the whole time I was there. Mm. I think it was like two in the afternoon maybe when I got arrested. It was a long day, wasn't it? Time just yeah. It was a long day, but time flew time at the same time. By. I felt like I was there for maybe two hours. Yeah, yeah. you looked down and I was like, oh my gosh, it's been like, we've been live for like four or five hours. I'm like, how has that even happened? It's just so intense and it kind of was so engrossing the whole time because we had, I mean, we had the live stream on one hand and then the actual camera trying to record on the other because the other camera records in 4K. So I was trying to zoom in on every arrest in case people needed footage <laughs> to use in their court cases later on. So, I mean, that was, it was quite full on. Yeah, and yeah. what about you? When was your arrest? Um, I was quite lucky. I had I was doing my lives as well, so I'd kind of walked up and down the police line a couple of times, and yeah, because it was so early, there was no pushing or anything from them. It was quite calm, and by the time I found my spot to sit down, um, again, I was quite lucky. I had an officer that I could tell like didn't want to be there, um, and so as they would uh, try and take their steps to push us back, you know, um, I could see either way. Some of them were being quite forceful, um, but yeah, as I could tell, mine in front was didn't want to be doing it. He was like, you know, oh, come come on, sister, move just a little bit, like you know. And he's taking these tiny baby steps, and <laughs> with his arm, his hand lightly on my arm, I'm thinking, you're not good at like the rest, <laughs> you know. Um, so by the time I actually got arrested, it was more just because I was one of the sort of smaller ones left in that space which is what they were aiming for. Um, at first they thought they'd just be able to whip me out on my own, but they didn't realise that I had my friend, he'd tied his poncho to me, and so then they'd be <laughs> dragging him along too. Um, so it wasn't until they'd realised that that it got a bit more forceful because they were trying to separate us. And again, he's like, you know, big Maori guy, and so the guys were a lot more forceful on him and then trying to rip us apart. So that would be the only time within my rest that kind of got really full on 
otherwise it was just sort of sitting there um, kind of being rolled around as they sort of upped it each time. Did it surprise you that the police came in with the actions that they did of trying to drag people out from behind or did you kind of expect that they were going to do that at some point? Um, Well, I I guess it all just comes back to logic, like tactics, you know. From the start, they just had their front line and they thought that they could just arrest people and then that wasn't working because then, of course, once we knew what they were doing, you had the protesters sticking together to hold each other in. Um, Again, in some of my lives, you can see where we're fully locked in together so that they couldn't pull us out. And so then it was like, okay, yeah, they're changing up their tactic, which was when they started cutting through to really corner us and surround us and mm. we were screwed. It was kind of like a pole driver to watch from above because I was on like a pillar quite high. So I was kind of watching down and seeing the tactics and it's almost like they would have their line and then the line would, their line would very slightly split mm-hmm. and they'd have a whole second line that was kind of set up like, you know, the poles that they use to drive through doors. Mm. It was kind of set up like that. So they'd push, they'd drive through like a big pole unit, push in between that little gap that they just created, mm. grab someone and then drag them out really fast. Yep. So it was almost like watching the jaws <laughs> open up, grab someone, kind of like the hungry hippo machine and then especially because we were near the edge like that gap they'd come through and really trampled across my friends but they'd created that gap and sort of gone to the other edge so that you had a real sort of group of us in there to get all out at once so yeah it was pretty full on do you think that if the police hadn't done that that day do you think the protest would have continued or do you think it would have maybe fizzled out I think maybe it would have fizzled out for sure because we were all kind of there and and not much was happening and we were kind of just standing around looking at each other, listening to a few people talking on the stage. And like, okay, cool. But there was no there was no atmosphere, there wasn't really much fun and I'm just like, gosh, this protesting stuff is kind of a little boring. Um and it's like, have we already done what what we were supposed to do? Is anything gonna come of this? But then when they did come in, it actually it done us a big favour, I think, because of the way the police came in and were a bit brutal and tried to do that. It, it woke up New Zealand and then everyone started coming in. The, the funding started to flood in. The tents started to be sent in. You know, New Zealand just stepped up and sent us everything. Manpower, pl- food... It definitely felt like it united a lot of people, you know, and and watching all the comments and things coming in, it really felt like people were actually, this is a real turning point because New Zealand's always been a nation of people that were really friendly and got along and didn't really like that much confrontation. Our police officers are actually really chill, I would say, for for a a small nation. Yeah, comparatively, when we look at the States or Canada, anything like that. So I think that that was a moment that did unite and shock people equally. And so then after that, it was a lot harder for them to try and like break down kind of the will and the strength of the protesters to a point where they would be able to shut it down again. Because, I mean, every single weekend it would turn into some kind of like massive party, you know, so it was very difficult for them. But how did you all meet? So you all got arrested at different times throughout the day. Did you know each other prior to that or did you all meet once you were in holding cells? How did that work? We actually did have a meeting, the three of us, earlier because there was something around the toilets and Becky is a big organiser and she was the one to make sure that there was toilets and, and um, yes, I just remember the three of us being around together and also I, I noticed Taryn because uh, there was some misunderstandings at the beginning of like where people were going to be staying. It's like one, people, one lot of people were like, okay, we can't come on Parliament. 
Taryn jumps up and is like, people, we are camping on Parliament. No one's going anywhere, which was great because everyone's confused. They're like, we thought we were going to be here until they came to speak to us, which meant camping on Parliament. So it was really good that Taryn got up and started uh, voicing her views because it, mm. it, uh, it solidified it for me that I was there to stay and, and everyone else too. We all knew what we were doing and that was... When did you camping. hear about the protest and about people actually camping there? Like, where did that even come from? Because I didn't even know that that was happening before I got to Parliament. Um, the convoy chat, uh, yeah. there was just, I remember people, I only heard about the convoy the day that it rocked into Christchurch. And then I joined that, best day of my life. Um, and then the convoy chat, I just noticed people saying, how long are we staying? Others are like, until we get until we achieve this, you know, we're not leaving until the mandates are finished or... So there's lots of people mm. um, supporting that. And I was like, okay, we're, we're here for maybe a while. Did you have any supplies going into that? Did you have no, tea, anything? No, no? Cool. I had back in my car a mattress and I, I just thought maybe we'd be there for two or three days and that people in Parliament would come out and communicate with us and, and we would have succeeded something. I thought I, I sort of was there for two or three days. And other people were saying stuff like, I can't get there till next weekend. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe we're here for a few weeks. And other people were like, okay, I can come the first weekend and the third weekend. And I was like, wow, people are really going to be committed to coming down when they can. Mm. Well, that was just the big unknown. I had someone ring me and they said, um, There's, is there a building for sale near there that we could house a whole lot of protesters? <laughs> <laughs> And I was going, buddy, I, oh, I hope that we do not need a building. <laughs> but I was like, <laughs> you know, cause I, but people just didn't know. I think my parents had hired um, a, a, wee, a wee house around the bay for a month because they were like, we don't know how long people are going to be here for. And so it was just such a difficult thing going into that unknown. But the atmosphere, atmosphere that was there was really incredible. But I do remember those first few days, it was pretty quiet. People didn't mm. really know what was going on. There was a bit of division. I think people were upset about who owned sound systems and whatnot. <laughs> Just such petty things, isn't it, when you look back. But that was happening very early on, and then that quickly changed after the initial day where the police did came in, come in with extraordinary violence towards the protesters. Um, I know Jeanette had her ribs broken, and now the police are saying, oh, well, we can't identify the officer because he was wearing a mask. So, oh, like, wow. you, you hear that kind of thing, and you say, well, so there's the, all of the negative press is completely on the shoulders of the protesters. The police didn't get anything. They're never held accountable for what they did to the people. And now they get to kind of walk away going, we did such a good job, pat ourselves on the back. But what was it like for you guys once you got to prison? Let's talk through kind of the prison time because a lot of other people signed the forms, got released straight away, and you ladies really dug your heels in on that. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the whole thing, you know, was evolving the whole time, right? You know, you didn't have, we didn't have a grand plan, but um, yeah, over that day in the cells, and we, I kind of, I mean, I think once we were all in there, I was like, oh, you know, we could potentially use this for our advantage and really um, get some attention with these arrests. So that's when I started getting to the women to start sharing their stories about why why they were there in Wellington, and just to show how like diverse we all were, and and then. Yeah, kind of started going, oh, yeah, okay. And then, of course, I, I got in touch with um, Sue Gray and, and she was like, yeah, you, you guys being in there is really getting attention. So that was like, and I was feeding that back to the group and they're like, okay, we could use this. And, and so I guess it whittled down over the day 
to oh, overnight, a eh? twenty of us overnight or something. Yeah, quite a few yeah. overnight. And then that wanted to stay in. Yeah, and I mean, most of the women were like, "Oh, I so want to stay," but for you know legitimate reasons, had to go, mm-hmm. or or just didn't yeah feel up to it. So that's totally understandable. Um, they were all amazing. And all the guys too, you know, we could hear the guys and, and yeah, it was it was an amazing atmosphere in there. <laughs> and then, yeah, by the next morning, most of the one, yeah, so like, I don't know, when it got down to us, seven, maybe halfway through that Just second the, day. The second day. Yeah, because they kept, so the whole second day was taken up with them trying to get us in front of this video link with the judge. Mm. Uh, yeah, and they brought us, like, over that night, Random times in the night they'd take us in, trying to get us to do fingerprints, offering again, sign this and we'll let you go sort of thing and all these weird deals and all this weird variation between all of us. Some of us were offered food, some of us weren't, some of us were this, some of us put in little cells on their own for a little while and brought back and it was super, super weird. And yeah, but yeah, but and then the next morning we asked, they kept letting me actually out to talk to everyone, to kind of like fill them in because I'd talk to Sue and then I'd talk to someone and blah, blah. And then we all got together again the next morning, which was probably quite nice of them, I suppose. I don't know if they that might have been something to do with the the fact that they were holding us longer than they were allowed, and by bringing us all back together, that gave them some sort of leeway again. Mm. Yeah, that's what we'd heard holding cell. Later. Yeah, if they had a separate, then it was a certain amount of hours. But if they, we were together, anyway, don't different. quite know. But yeah. yeah, so then it was like, okay, well. And we, I guess we still hadn't fully galvanised by then until we're, not, we're like, we were like, we're not signing it. And then they're like, okay, well, if you don't sign, you're going to go to prison. And then by the end of that day, they'd taken us up to the courthouse because they couldn't get the video link working. So so what was it that they wanted you to sign? Was it like some kind of release form saying I did these things? Yeah, or? the willful trespass, the charge. So the charge sheet of willful, willful trespass and the bail conditions of you're not allowed to go back to parliament. Hmm. And that's what we'd sort of discussed between us on that second day. Um, I'd said, you know, I was fine. I'd already lost everything, my job. I didn't have anything to go back to. And um, then that was sort of the discussion based on some of the ladies that couldn't go go through because of their children. Um, a couple of the ladies were unsure based on what their husbands had to say. Uh, one lady didn't think her husband would agree, but once she'd got that phone call, she was like, I'm in, I'm coming too. And so then that was it. It was like once we'd sort of decided, okay, yeah, that's us. And that's how we'd sort of got to our seven. And so it was in that day that it sort of filtered out. And then they were mucking around to get the seven of us in front of the judge. Um, the camera link kept work not working. Like we didn't know. We'd never been in this situation before. Um, and of course, again, you had officers that were like, this shouldn't be happening to you guys. Like they could tell looking at us, we're like, we've, we've never been arrested. We don't know what's going on. What's next? And like, they were just walking around a bit dumbfounded too. Like they're like, oh, you know, they were trying to offer us anything that they had because all we were getting was noodles. Um, and then by the time we, they changed it up to take us to the courthouse, um, that's when it had fizzled down to us seven. Mm. us saying that we're not signing that we haven't done anything wrong we're not prepared to be involved in the system and that's when that resulted to you're going to jail (laughs) so how long were you held in jail before you were released and what were the conditions of you all being released um we were two days in the prison cells and then three days in um arahata woman's prison and uh they took us into um on our third day they took us 
back in to uh, go up against the judge and they tried to um, get us to sign bail again. They also tried to say, all right, well, you don't have any bail conditions but you still have to sign this. And we were like, no, we're not signing anything because um, we don't agree with anything. So we're not recognising it, so we're not signing it. So they were really stumped because there were six of us that had given our details and the seventh one hadn't, and we were all going to band together if they were only going to let us six out and not the seventh that hadn't given any of her details. Then we were like, nah, we're staying, and they knew this. And yep. so they were like, well, they couldn't really hold us, I guess. Um, and so it wasn't until the Monday when they put us up in front of the judge again and I think it was only maybe two or three of us had gone through before they realised again, okay, you know, these, these ladies are sticking to it. Like, in my opinion, I honestly think they just threw us in there for the weekend to try and scare us and we'd run out on Monday. Whereas, again, when we came up in front, you know, they tried sort of just different things with the, the legal aid. Like, the legal aid told me, oh, yeah, you want you, you won't, don't want anything by your name. I was like, no, I haven't done anything. I'm not doing anything. He's like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then he rushed it through and then went through in the courts to plead guilty. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're not guilty. We're not doing anything. We're not. And so then that changed it again because he's like, oh, but if, if you just plead guilty and then mm. go through, then we can get through the system and then you can get out of here. And it was like emphasizing we've got nothing else out there. Like we're, we're here for a reason going to jail doesn't scare us. That's scary, but, you know. Um, and so, yeah, then again, they sort of realised, oh, yeah, we're sticking together when we got kicked out. It wasn't that they released us on bail. So it was just like, oh, oh, you can go. They also wow. kind of said that um, it didn't matter in the end whether we signed or not, which was really interesting because they said whether you sign or not, you still have a warrant out for your arrest if you do not turn up to your court date. Um, you'll, you'll, yeah, mm. well, we can arrest you again. So we're like, oh. <laughs> Which was ridiculous again, because then when we turned up to our court dates oh, yeah. together, I think it was like two days later or whatnot, they then wouldn't let us into the courthouse. So it's like, so you've told us there's a warrant out for arrest if we don't turn up, we're here and you're not going to let us in. Is that because of COVID? Or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because they're like, we're, no, no, they're like, are you vaccinated? <laughs> we're like, no, <laughs> why are we here? And then they're like, oh, will you have a test? We're like, no. Mask, all of that stuff. So then we just were left out standing on the road. <laughs> so what happened? Did anything happen after that or did it just fizzle out? Uh, well, we had um, Elena, yeah. um, a lady that was studying law, come in. She was, she was amazing. She got everybody, almost everybody, off all their bail charges because of us, because we got released with no bail, it then meant that everyone else should be under the same ruling and she got most mm. of the other 120 off all their bail wow. conditions <laughs> on that Thursday as well. So really amazing that she ju jumped on board there and, and sorted that out for everyone because it meant everyone could go back to Parliament without being arrested again. That, so that makes sense because I always wondered, I did wonder how everyone could go back without being arrested and that's fascinating. Go Elena. Yeah. <laughs> Stranger Elena, go you. Yeah. Someone that was just studying law got a hundred over a yep. hundred of them off. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. That's awesome. I, I was interested in what you said before about everyone being there for their own reasons. So if we can just go around and say, why were you at the protest? What did it mean to you? Um, I had been mandated out of my job um, November prior. 
I was with um, adult intellectual um, disabilities. And at the time, I kind of thought it's just a job. I'm fine. I've got the rest of my life. But it wasn't until it actually started um, affecting my mental health, like um, not being able to go to the gym, uh, then realising that I wouldn't be able to participate in the triathlon events that I was all geared up to go. Um, and then, yeah, I just heard about it. I was like, oh, well, I'm off. <laughs> I'm coming too. It's happening. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I wasn't really there for personal reasons. Um, I was actually super stoked to be mandated. I was like, summer, yeah. <laughs> and uh, like I'm, I'm a good saver, so I was financially able to be able to take a big holiday without the stress of the brain. I was, I was super stoked, actually, that I didn't have to live um, and conform and, you know, do the societal things. But I was at an unvaxxed netball game with other friends that were either vaccinated because they were forced to be vaccinated or otherwise forced as in, like, they couldn't afford to lose their jobs. Bullied into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and other ones that had just lost their jobs and stuff like that. And they had children. They couldn't get on the convoy, but they were like, wow, you don't have children. I, I had the freedom to be able to get on that convoy. And um, I, was, I was confused. I was like, I actually am really stoked that I don't have to go to work right now. What am I doing on this convoy? But, yeah, I, I'm so stoked that I'd done it um, for the other people that couldn't make it. But my biggest reason probably was more for... Um, uh, small businesses, or it wasn't just the vaccines for me. It was like all the lockdowns, and you know, like our country's going through recession. Um, finan- everyone's going through financial hardship, and everyone was convinced that they were getting these free vaccines and or free money from the government every time we went into lockdown. Auckland was in lockdown for a long time. All this free money for two thirds of the population—it's got to come from somewhere, you know. And I was just like, "Gosh, this is not good." It's um, it's not sustainable and considering you know the people that were uh, really affected badly by this COVID virus were all like 70 or 80 plus you know there's a few younger people but and I've talked to nurses that work in hospitals they're saying most of them had huge underlying issues that would have died from the flu anyway and I um and just to validate that as well, I think the average comorbidities for a COVID death, the average age of death was around 80 to 82, which is the average age of life, and the average age, um, the average comorbidities was four. Mm. Wow, yeah. Yeah, and so I, was, I just thought that all this money being spent and all these lockdowns, all these people being locked away, and that was affecting mental health and there was a lot more suicides and stuff like that. And, um, you know, like not giving us the choice you know do you all want to be in lockdown do you all want to have a vaccine i'm all for supporting anyone with their choices if you want to go into your own lockdown go into your own lockdown cool but all these other businesses that all had to shut their door every time that they had a lockdown those there was more and more businesses being shut down permanently uh and if you lose your business you lose your house if you lose your house half the time you might even lose your family who knows and loads of people did lose their families just over vax um status and so mainly that was why I was there. Once again, I was super lucky. My family was very supportive of me. I didn't lose um, any family members, um, uh, maybe three friends in my life maybe that are no longer in my life. Mm. But yeah. Mm. Um, 
yeah, I um, had kind of been involved in the whole thing from, from the get-go. You know, you could see it was quite obvious. Uh, my family's always been quite aware of government overreach and stuff, so it was really obvious continuum of everything that had been happening. Uh, but I um, was the – I started the Voices for Freedom group up in Hokianga, Freedom group up there, and so – um, and had supported a lot of my friends who were teachers and nurses when they were getting um, threatened with losing their job or being forced into taking this thing they didn't want to take into their bodies. Um, and so for me it was just like, you know, that whole notion of government's man a, a mandate, the ability to, of a government to mandate is just um, something that actually shouldn't be there because um, at the end of the day if you don't have a freedom to choose then we don't live in a democracy. <laughs> um, so for me it was on that level uh, kind of vex issue or not, um, it's then it's the notion of choice and 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 where, uh, what's the role of government? Is it is it a um, is it moral police or is it facilitation of resources and all of that sort of thing? Um, yeah, so I was there to yeah represent a lot of people up north. Um, you know, I, through that group that we'd started up there, it was really really obvious that we were far from alone. And then that first day on the convoy. I um, realised that, you know, like the thousands of people just between my tiny home in Hokianga and Whangarei, which is when I just finally decided, oh, my God, OK, I'm going. <laughs> I have to go. This is it. It's finally it. Uh, yeah, just, just so that's like a two-hour drive and there were thousands and thousands of people lining the roads in the middle of nowhere sometimes. Um, yeah, so I, I had nothing with me. I just decided to kind of go and support it for the day because I'd heard about it like two days before. And um, you just had like a summer dress on because it was a roasting hot day that day and went with nothing. No, no extra clothes, no sleeve bag, no nothing. It was like, okay, this is happening. And it was awesome. It was, and that whole trip down was just like crazy. That one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And yeah, it was evolving the whole way, like being, um, I was on the, the Voices for Freedom chat, you know, when they started kind of taking over the coordination of it all because things had got a little bit political with, the people who originally kind of came up with the idea and, you know, there was a lot going on. So that's how I ended up organising toilets by the time I got to, <laughs> to Wellington. Um, yes, but yes, and I was definitely there on that level of this is just not appropriate behaviour for a mm. government to be doing. Um, yeah. Abs absolutely, absolute overreach. And it's interesting now because they say, oh, but it was never mandatory. <laughs> it was a mandate, but it wasn't mandatory. <laughs> so you weren't forced mm. into it. You were just bullied and coerced into it. And they're totally different mm. things. It was yeah, really because we had a choice. Mm. This, this yeah. what they say. So like yeah. they brought out the Health and Disability Act, right? And in every single item on that list was just ignored. Like that little booklet that's in every healthcare clinic, every workplace, you know, those those rights. Out yeah. the door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, no, like, everything, no, nothing had meaning the minute they didn't want it to have any meaning. Right. That's and so you just change the law. The ability to change a law too, mm. like and, and with that rate. Um, I mean, when that when that's happening, that's not democracy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's dangerous. Mm. Let's get into some of the positive stuff that you guys remember from the po protest. What was your highlight? What would you? What was your one pinnacle? Where you sat there and you thought, man, I'm actually really loving this. Or what was a beautiful moment between people? Mine was probably on the second day and we're all kind of confused, all mulling around, not really sure what was going on. And, um, you know, there was some, 
uh, just some conversations getting heated between people and then uh, mostly towards the people up in the parliament that were recording us and stuff like that. And also just around the who was going to be controlling the speakers for the day, (laughs) you know, because there wasn't really anyone in charge. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, people were starting to get a little bit antsy and some at each other. And then Machu got up and started singing and started calming everybody Mm. down. And I was just like, wow, I just called him our our saviour, our angel from then on. I was just like, oh, my God. It was a really magic moment to watch him unite all these people. I mean, there's a lot of unhappy people there that have lost their their lives, their jobs, everything. Some of them were vaccinated, force vaccinated. Some of them were vaccinated. Um, and for him to get up there and unite all these different people, like we had all, every, so many people in different walks of life were affected by this. And so we had all different walks of life there from... You know, there's mention of the homeless people and then there's mention of, like, the business people all the way through. And he united us. And throughout the whole three weeks of being there, the unity between everybody, there was no um, there was no pecking order. Everyone was equal. All different types of races, religions, um, age groups. Um, yeah, it, we were all friends with each other. It was the most diverse place. Yeah. yeah. If you want to talk about diversity and inclusion, far out. You couldn't pick a much more diverse bunch of people than everybody that was at that protest. And I think. Small part of land. Yeah, a tiny part of land (laughs) that held a lot of different opinions and people. But that was what was so cool about it as well, is that that's such a rarity to occur. Even at festivals, you often have certain ages and demographics and things like that, yet this was such a random, sporadic group of people. And I think the one thing I find interesting is they like to talk about the the dangers of fascism and cult-like thinking, but everyone that was at that protest is about individualism, and that's why they couldn't find a leader, because everyone wanted to be there for themselves. Mm. They, They didn't want to be led by anyone, they wanted to be there by themselves, they had individual groups, everyone was focused on what it meant to be there for them, not even necessarily the collective, it's just for themselves. They were there for them. And then you look at real cult-like behaviour and it's everyone has to do this for the collective. So you need to listen to the leader, potentially the one that came on at TV, and you need to follow the collective because that's for the greater good. So it's interesting, I I think, the terminology of when they look back on the the protest and some of the media that comes out about it. Bex, what was your highlight? Um, I mean, it was really the convoy. By the time I arrived in Wellington, I was already like, shh, this is it. Oh, my God. Thank God, like, we're not alone. I knew we weren't alone and it was just proof, like, seeing those overpasses all through Auckland and the whole way down the country was, like, packed. Mm. It was like, here we are, here's New Zealand. And, and again, yeah, the diversity of people all along the roadside. Um, yeah, I mean, getting in that paddy wagon with a bunch of women who were just, like, kind of just grinning at each other going, yeah, who cares? Um, um that was that was pretty cool. Mm. Um yeah, dancing on the wall, seeing yeah, seeing a tiny little old woman having a hug with this giant gang member or a businessman talking to a I don't know. A Hare Krishna a, 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 or, yeah, or a hippie yeah. a hippie yeah. kid with a little you know, like whatever. It was so beautiful seeing those interactions and people would get into these intense conversations, not even introduce themselves. That didn't matter anymore. Yeah. It was just like straight <laughs> into like, you know, oh my God, I just lost my mum because she won't talk to me anymore or whatever. Like, 
I wasn't able to go to my father's funeral. Those sorts of level, that depth of, of connection. And um, yeah, that whole diversity, like when Jacinda came, I think she said, this is not representative of New Zealand. Um, like, and I got up on the first day and I said, if this isn't representative, then I don't know what is. Yeah. Mm, um, that's really powerful. It was, and really it was crazy. Yeah. And just seeing the generosity, like radical generosity is what makes this country go around. Like it could mm. so easily. Like that's what we saw was, oh, we've actually got everything we need here. We don't need a government and we don't need all this fear. We've got all the skills and the resources and the, yeah, we could just make it happen. Yeah, like, yeah. like when uh, Trevor Mallard turned the sprinklers on all the protesters <laughs> yeah. in the middle of this torrential downpour. I, think, I don't know if it was like some kind of um, tw- like so, like a hurricane or something like that. It was some big dramatic event that they were using. And so every you know people got really upset being in the rain and then next minute it just changed. It, was, it went from being like, oh no, <laughs> we're covered to being like, awesome. Farmers are bringing in hay bales, they're protecting the grass because an old man I think slipped and broke his ankle and so the, or his wrist so then they wanted to look after the grass and they put hay bales down everywhere and then some plumbing were starting to redirect water and then it got turned into this water party you know people were just loving it and there's amazing photos of these people standing protesting on one of the walls and are standing up at parliament against parliament holding up their kiwi flags and i just thought man that's it was powerful you know because it really showed people that no matter what we want to stand here until we get listened to and i think that's kind of the fundamental core of it all people just really wanted to be heard what was your highlight uh, yeah, mine would have been the convoy as well. Um, you know, coming from a smaller town, it was all sort of very censored. Like, you know, we, we kind of knew who was on what side, but then you'd kind of keep the peace and not overly discuss it. We had our, our groups that we'd kind of started getting together, but um, the majority of the people in those groups I'd sort of only just met around all of this. Um, and so because I'd only found out about the convoy like the day before, I think, and messaged my friend was like, do you have room? I'm coming. Um, it wasn't until we'd got to Napier uh, that night and that they were going to be coming through the next day. Um, it was pouring down in rain. We're in like their half done horse cart. Like, you know, she'd just started with the bed and partial kitchen. There was no bathroom in it, you know, but there's us all piled in waiting. And um, when we arrived at the spot, like there was no one else. We're thinking, okay, is this really happening? We were starting to doubt and then, yeah, like once the sort of light of the day started coming up, people saw their big uh, horse truck and because we'd decorated it, covered it in writing, people just assumed that we were in charge there and so they just started flocking in with like massive amounts of food. Like, I can't be seen here, I've got a business to protect but I'll leave all of this food donations. We're like, oh, okay, yeah. And then it was, um, you know, tents and gazebos and whatnot. We're like, oh, okay. So it was already the build-up of all the generosity there. And as you said, you know, complete strangers. You know, we're going through it too. We don't agree. And as well as that, uh, the amount of people that were there that were vaccinated but in support of pro-choice as well. Mm. You know, that's what was important to me. It's like we don't need to judge each other on our viewpoints. And so the amount of people that would stand there with a sign, I'm vaxxed, I'm pro-choice, you know, all of that. And then, yeah, once the convoy came through in Napier, I was like recording, standing there in tears in the pouring rain with all these people. Because even though we'd had semi-supportive groups back home, you're just still feeling so isolated and alone. You know, you're like questioning everything. I've done the supposed right thing. I was contributing to the community. I'm doing great things and I've just been 
thrown to the dogs. Like, so that was the realisation of I'm not alone and there's a whole lot more. And so then as you we progressed through each township, as you said, like people standing out in the middle of nowhere. They didn't know when we were coming through for sure, but they knew we were coming, standing there, holding their kids. You're doing this for my kids. That was like really sort of the main thing. My kids, thank you. Thank you for my kids. Um, and then even... I think once we got to Palmerston was like the real big, real huge. There was just people everywhere and there was just copious amounts of food. And then we sort of got to see all together exactly how much of us, because we were there in the subdivision, they ran out of room in the subdivision. They had to find more room and we're just like, yeah, we, we got this. Mm. I don't know where this is going, but we got this, you know, this is something. And I think that was a big thing for me personally after just, yeah, feeling like the whole rest of my life had been sort of tipped upside down. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then having those discussions, you know, a lot of people were just very much in the same boat. There's a lot of talk around the protesters and what they should and shouldn't have done and language that was used and signs that were made. How do you look back and see some of, like, the, the messaging that was written about, you know, Jacinda being killed and things like that? How do you guys perceive any of that? In my opinion, it's always easy to look back and go, what if, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Like, in, in any situation, positive, there's always going to be stuff that you can critique. And then again, we also need to remember there's always going to be extremes. No matter what discussion or interest or whatever, you're always going to butt heads with someone, oh, you're a bit too far in for me, or, you know, and, and that's going to happen. And at the end of the day, there were a lot of hurt, distraught people just from that last couple of years, let alone people that have been well aware of all of this stuff for a long time. So that wasn't just a matter of, oh, you know, you tripped over and stubbed your toe. Whoa. Like some people, it has ripped them apart. And so at the same time, again, like anything is healthy because it needs to come out. It's not always going to be a great way of coming out, but it comes out to bring awareness. And that's what we needed. And that's what happened. And so from then on out, it's like made people aware. Oh, actually, I don't want to live my life like that. In like my version personally, it's decided, oh, yeah, okay, those friends aren't really my friends. <laughs> That's fine. Mm. You know, I want to make these choices. Do I want to be in the system? So it's just like sort of silver linings of moving forward because, if anything, she brought a whole bunch of diverse people out of the woodworks to clump together like so. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of situations, we never... Um there's uh, like someone out there or a group of people out there and they're causing huge drama or they're hurting people. Like I've always stood by um, the, the saying hurt people hurt people and considering how much all, a lot of these people at Parliament, their lives were really, really hurt. You know, they'd lost a lot. I think that those few little signs or those few people that were lashing out, absolutely nothing compared to how hurt most people that were at Parliament actually were. I feel like it was, um, I mean, sure, there were some out there lash outs, but in comparison to how hurt all the protesters or a lot of the protesters' lives have been, um, and even the protesters that weren't there, people that were supporting from afar, in comparison to how mm. hurt um, the government and their choices have um, hurt people, uh, I think that those few things minuscule. I mean you had medical professionals openly saying they didn't want to treat vaccinated people, saying that they think vac oh, sorry, unvaccinated people, that they think unvaccinated people should die. So when you've got a real threat versus someone that's made a sign, 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Especially considering that, yeah, it was such a few, the, the few of those more really angry signs were like a speck in this ocean of like peace and love, <laughs> Flower, handing flowers to the cops, drawing beautiful rainbows and aroha and kids doing beautiful pastel drawings all over the place, expressing creativity and music and, and dancing and hugs and um even well wishes to the to the parliament to the parliamentarians because people recognised that it was so much bigger than just our you know the faces Jacinda being the face of a way way bigger picture and um, knowing it was an institutional thing and, and even an admission from a lot of people there that in some ways we've created the situation ourselves by allowing by taking the easy route with with allowing government governments to get into a position where they can do things like mandate. <laughs> you know, we've allowed that in many ways. It's not um, big baddies necessarily, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they only take an opportunity. Um, it's all yeah. part of the game and they played it well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just think that at the end of the day, there's beautiful connections and bonds and friendships that have been made, like what you ladies share, that will run far further than any protest and it's lifelong friendships that people did make coming through that battle zone of those few years where they really felt like it was a psychological war against people that were saying to the government no you're pushing me too far and this is my line and I'm not going to accept being exiled from society well ladies thank you so much I've so enjoyed chatting to you and I think you're all very very strong women so thank you for joining us on the Chantal show here at RCR let's wrap up this very interesting show and I hope you found a lot of value in our bits and pieces and breaking down this IPCA report because it's a long document it's a lot to go through but we think there are numerous points here which the general public need to understand about this report. The result of this justifies all of the police actions, there's no discussion on why the protesters were there, what escalated it, what brought them to that situation, there's no talk of using democracy or discussion to solve the problem. Apparently it's acceptable to use violent force as long as a parliamentary member decides not to have a conversation with the public. Instead, the whole conversation is centred around providing the police with more equipment and changing laws that would enable the use of further force in the future. We've seen this exemplified by recently bringing over police from Hong Kong to train our police about how to handle protesters. In Hong Kong, it's being taken over by the Chinese Communist Party and they use force such as firearms on their protesters because they don't want you to protest. So if that's the kind of training our, pro- our police are getting, what is this going to mean for the future of democracy here in New Zealand? Is this really the New Zealand that we want? And Alistair, I'd like your thoughts on this as someone who's lived in Singapore for a number of years. How do you see the Chinese training of our police panning out in the future? Yeah, as you say, I lived in Singapore for almost 20 years. And while they're not a Chinese territory, um, they do have very similar sorts of laws and so on. But they are also known as a democracy. And this is the warning that I'd like to share with New Zealanders as we think about this, because this police report, its solution to all of this is not democracy. It's not discussion and dialogue. It's we need more laws so that we can be more violent, I suppose, or or use more force quicker. That's what their solution is from 
from all of this, from my reading. To me, when I read through that and the justifications for the, the use of force and then the, 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 the requests, I suppose, for more laws, it just reminds me of my time in Singapore. Now, in Singapore, I used to work um, one block away from a park. It was called Speaker's Corner. And it had a little concrete block where a speaker could stand up on and, and speak to the masses. And I suppose it was uh, it was a nod and um, an echo of Speaker's Corner and Hyde Park and many other Speaker's Corners around the world. And I there's one at Albert Park as well, I seem to recall, up in Auckland where the Posey Parker thing happened recently. But anyway, the Speaker's Corner is really is really interesting because there's also a police station there. And this is what more laws about freedom of speech and protest in New Zealand leads to. If you want to make a speech at Speaker's Corner in Singapore, you have to go to the police station and you have to apply for a permit so that you can go and stand up on that concrete block and give a speech. And part of that is you have to give the contents of your speech. You have to write it out and you have to give it to the police and the police can edit it if they like and they can tell you, no, you can't say this and you can say that. And then you have to get up on that that block and you have to read that speech word for word. So every protest that happens in Singapore is completely controlled by the government. Now, is that what we want in New Zealand? Because that's what's going to happen if we keep on introducing more and more laws like this report is asking. And that's my warning for New Zealanders that, you know, you can you can say that I believe in freedom of speech, but only to a point, And, you know, we have to be reasonable and all of that. But the point of protest is that it is uncomfortable for people. And they can talk all they like about how uh, the people of Wellington were inconvenienced by this protest. That's fine. But the people who were there protesting had been inconvenienced in a far greater fashion. And that's why they were there. So if we're going to shut down voices, if we're going to if we're going to uh, include more legislation to try and shut down voices, just be aware that that's what's going to happen in the end. You're not going to have a voice or your voice will be allowed, but only if it's approved. And I think that's a really stark warning for all of us here in New Zealand. This brings me to my final thoughts. What New Zealand do we want? Do we want a New Zealand with more choice or do we want a New Zealand with more control? They say they need to change legislation to enable police in the future to act more aggressively against protesters. But this protest happened because of the biggest violation of human rights in New Zealand's history that we have seen in the last 50 years. So if changing legislation means that the government can enact whatever they want at any point, and if we start to rise up and if anyone starts to try and stop them, we're going to be met with brutal force, is that the New Zealand that we need? Is that the New Zealand that police officers really want? Or do we want a New Zealand where Parliament actually has to come to the party, speak with citizens and use democracy to find resolution? Because from my end, I think people need to get serious about getting out and voting and deciding what kind of future they want for their country. Because this isn't the New Zealand that I recognise. This isn't the New Zealand that many people recognise. It's divided, it's hateful, it's nasty. People aren't allowed opinions that don't agree with the media. And people are getting slandered left, right and centre for sharing any view that this current government deems is inappropriate. I know the New Zealand that I want. I want the New Zealand 
that cares about people. I want the New Zealand where you can have conversations and disagree and it's okay. I want the New Zealand that focuses on laughing and chatting and hanging out rather than abusing people. I want a New Zealand that realises we don't need the government in every single part of our lives. They didn't used to be there. Let's go back to the old New Zealand, the good New Zealand, the New Zealand where you were friends with everybody and we didn't talk endlessly about politics because we had to. It was a side conversation here or there. That's my final thoughts. Have a great weekend, everybody. I so appreciate you tuning in and then sharing our replays later on. It's really wonderful to see the response that we've been getting here at RCR. You've been listening to The Chantelle Baker Show with my producer, Alistair Harding. This is Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantelle Baker, Reality Check Radio.